our good and our holy God on this, the first Sunday of the year. We do lift our voices to praise you, and we praise you as Father, Son, and Spirit. God, we are grateful that out of a sense of your own aliveness and love that you gave us life, that you created us. And Lord, we thank you and we give you praise because when we, like sheep, went astray, you came for us. You have been so relentless and tender and stubborn and kind toward us. And God, we give you thanks. We thank you. And we pray, Lord, that on this day we're reminded of the abundance of your love. And that you stir in our hearts a deep desire to follow you more fully and faithfully. God, we thank you for songs to sing and prayers to pray and and resources to give and people to greet. And God, we thank you for your word. Your word that is a lamp for our feet, a light for our path. As we open it now, Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That you would give us tender hearts that would receive your word like a seed planted in rich, fertile soil. God, we pray that you give us feet that would walk quickly to do your will. God, we pray that you'd make our hands strong. That our work in this world would be like your very own. God, sincerely we pray that a word of life and hope would be found on our lips. God, this is our prayer in the precious and the strong name of Jesus. And we pray together saying, amen and amen. Friends, please be seated. And as you're seated, find a Bible. If you brought yours with you, that's wonderful. If you haven't, there should be one close to you, back of a pew. And turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, today's text Matthew chapter 2. Give you just a second as you dig out your Bibles and number two lead pencils. We begin reading in verse 1. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who was born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising, and we have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it has been written by the prophets, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may go and pay him homage. When they had heard that the king, they set out, and and they were ahead of them, went the star that had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. 
On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and they paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Now after they had left, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt... I have called my son. When Herod saw that that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated. And he sent and killed all of the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under according to the time that had been learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. Wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they were no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he'd heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. My prayer is that God would bless the reading of his word. Matthew chapter 2 tells the gritty story of the entrance of Jesus into this world. Matthew writes uh, with the world in mind and he writes to Israel. The gospel of Matthew begins with a genealogy uh, that that starts with David and, and Abraham. The book ends with the commission to go into all the nations and proclaim the gospel, carrying with it the promise that, that the people of God would never be forsaken, that God would be with them uh, all the way uh, to, the, to the end of it. Uh, it's a book about the world, and it's a book about Israel. It's, it's, a, it's a broad book, and it's a narrow book. Uh, it's for all of us, and it tells this fascinating story of God. God being at work through a people to bless every nation on the face of the earth. Jesus the Messiah and Jesus the Savior of the world. The second chapter of this this great book has all the elements. It carries over these themes. Matthew tells this uh, in four vivid scenes. So today what I want us to do is to linger over these scenes for a few moments listening for the call of God to the world and the invitation that God is placing on your individual life. This broad and focused story is for everyone you'll ever meet and for you.
So if you do have those, those pencils out, if you do have a place to take some notes, let's begin looking at this scene by scene. The first scene is the first 12 verses. We'll call this scene, Magi from the East Meet King Herod. This, this is the story of these wise men. Uh, Matthew narrates, he says, uh, wise men came from the east. Well, east of what? East of Jerusalem, perhaps. Maybe they're from Persia or Arabia or Babylon. Uh, maybe they're people that have had interaction with Jews who were living around because of the diaspora, uh, and they, they, they're there. Maybe they're men who are astrologers who spend their time looking at the stars Lawrence of Arabia was on television yesterday, and I just had to watch a few moments of it. And you remember that scene where they're laying there in the desert, and, and you just have that beautiful sky. So you have this notion of these regal men uh, who spend time on their backs looking up at God's beautiful sky. And they're the kind of people with a, a curiousness of heart and a keenness of mind, and they, and they look, and they pay attention, and they observe and they hunger, and they desire, and they seek. Sometimes these, these wise men are depicted as some, some type of snake oil salesman, you know, that just roll into town, a razzle-dazzle, all dressed up for the show. Matthew doesn't depict them like that. Matthew, Matthew depicts them as, as honest, earnest seekers. And isn't it God just to meet us where we are? And they're, they're lying there looking at, at the beauty of the sky, that, that, velvet, that velvet night with those sparkling diamonds. They see a star arise. And something is born in their hearts. It's a desire to follow. And they follow, and they follow, and they get to Jerusalem, the capital the capital of the Jewish people, and they get there. And this is, when they, uh, this is when they're met by Herod. This is the other character in this first scene. Herod, the big shot, hears about these foreign visitors searching for a king. Herod is a paranoid leader at the end of his life. Herod had done some heinous things in his, in his own time. He'd done some horrible things. Some suggest that as he came to power, he had some of the Sanhedrin executed in order to limit their authority, their strength, and their power. He killed a wife. He killed some kids. He killed people he worked with. He snuffed out all manner of uprising. And here are these guys in town searching for a new king of the Jews. And it bothers him. It bothers him. And it said in the text that he was fearful. And as he became fearful, all of Jerusalem became fearful. Have you ever known an abusive person? Someone who is, who is a strong person within their, within their system of influence, but strong in all the wrong, wrong, wrong ways? Strong because they were afraid, uh, like a dog in the corner. Uh, they like to snip and bite. Have you ever known a person like that? Well, when their waters are troubled, they trouble all the waters around them. You just have to make sure you don't step too loudly or daddy will get upset. And when daddy's upset, everybody gets upset. It is the anti-calm presence 
When you read books on leadership, one of the things they write in these books is they say one of the greatest gifts a leader can give to any organization is being a calm presence, being a calming presence. Well, Herod was the exact opposite of that. His heart was troubled by this threat of a usurping king, and he troubled the whole blame town. So he had to figure it out. He had to figure it out. He, he had to come up. So he invited the scholars in. You know, the guys with the reading glasses perched on the ends of their nose, the guys that had read all the stuff that knew it backwards and forwards. He invited the guys who'd written all the commentaries to come and sit down and hang out with him. Now remember, he killed some of the Sanhedrin. They probably didn't want to hang out with him. But when Herod called, you had to answer. So they called, and he, they, got, they got together. Where are we going to find this king? Where, where, where should I find this king? And they said, well, Herod. They found the place, the old dusty pages. They said, Bethlehem. The city of David. This is serious. This is serious business. Normally, people, when they were looking at the stars in this period of time, uh, the, the stars would, uh, comets or whatnot, would, would, would be a portent of the fall of a leader. Mostly the death of a person in power. So here's a broken down old despot at the end of his run. Talk of stars. In the king city. And these men from so far away, in his mind, who are probably allied with his enemies, come into town. Go get the wise men. Hey, go tell them to come. Go get those foreign guys and tell them to come. Let's have a sit down with them. It was a secret meeting. So they probably didn't meet in official places. They probably met at some uh, off-site kind of place, some kind of little seedy bar in Jerusalem, maybe. You know, they're, they're eating, you're eating falafel and drinking wine. Hey, guys, how you like the falafel? It's the best we got. It's pretty nice. It's great. Tell me about this star. Tell me about this king, because I, I want to worship him, too. I want to worship him, too. What do the wise men do? The wise men go. The wise men go and they see him. They go to this little house that, that Joseph had arranged for them to have. He's probably waiting 40 days for a cl the cleansing uh, after this birth. Uh, however long it's been, who knows. But there's this little house and he finds them in this little place. And, and, and they go in. And they see this family, this, this young family, this crying baby. And they see in this, in this crying baby that this mama is fussing with and this daddy is beaming over. They see in this baby the star that's risen that God had sent them for. And they broke out, this is my favorite part, their treasure chest. As a kid, I loved pirate stories. And, and I looked all around my backyard for buried treasure because I believe that buried treasure could absolutely be anywhere. 
I still sort of believe that. When, I, when I'm around Galveston, uh, I, I still poke around for something that Jean Lafitte had left behind, you know. Well, they had in their caravan a treasure chest. Go back to your childhood dreams. I mean, this is not these little things we see uh, in, our, in our Cretia scenes, in our nativity scenes. They broke out the box, dripping with treasure. That box must have looked a little out of place in that humble little house in Bethlehem. It must have looked a little odd. It must have been like that, that sort of beat-down old uh, caravan out in front, and, and just the fancy car rides right up in the middle of it. Well, they, they, they come in, and, and they park their treasure chest, and they bow before this broke family, and they, they pay homage to a baby. And they give this treasure to Joseph and to Mary. We've told this story so long. We've sung this story so long that we've lost its absurdity. And the absurdity is where we find the grace of it all. In that room, the pretty and the handsome laid their gifts before a baby. And all he could do was cry and coo and fuss and need a new diaper. And this was God at work. What are these guys about? What do they symbolize for us? They symbolize the important response that God would have us all make to grace in our midst. Homage and costly worship and service. They remind us of those scenes in the Old Testament where the kings of the earth came to the kingdom of God. They, they pre, prefigure that scene from Revelation where the kings of the earth will bring into the new Jerusalem the glory of the nations. They show us that God's love is for all and that our response to that love makes all the difference. The Magi show us that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And he did it without an army. He did it without a sword. He did it without a threat or coercion. He did it through a baby in a little house in Bethlehem. Kostenberger and Stewart say this in the first days of Jesus. The worship of the Magi pictures the willing submission of the Gentile nations. The, the submission of them without military action. It, it portrays their inclusion within the scope of God's kingdom and God's plan. The world came to Jesus and worshipped him as king in the days of his first breath among us. And what do we make of Herod? The polar opposites of these wise men. He was the ultimate insider. He was the guy in charge. He was an Edomian, but he was running the show. He built the great temple. 
Some of you have walked through the ruins of Herod's temple. You've been to that place. You've seen that stuff. You've seen the charts. Maybe you built one for Bible school one summer. Who knows? But he's the guy who built the big place for everybody to come and worship. He wrote the big checks. He had his name on all the signs. He had access to the best scholars. He could ask the deepest questions, and he did ask them, where is the king to be born? And they told him. He was the guy who should have known, and he did know, and he had all the information. And instead of following the example of these men who had just the faintest light and who followed that faint light until they worshiped with all their heart and their lives, he sought to snuff out the life that had come to give us life. You say, that doesn't make any sense. Exactly. Our rebellion and our sinfulness does not make a lick of sense. But we all can identify with it, can't we? God in his abundant grace comes here and we fight like the Dickens because we'd rather be the God of our own existence. Herod was a broken down old God. And sometimes we are too. And we can get out of that trap by following the example of the wise men. And breaking out our treasure chest and laying our lives before this humble king that is gathered among us. What a scene that first scene is. The scene of the Magi coming and meeting with Herod. The second scene, if you're keeping up, is the escape to Egypt. This is in verses 13 to 15. Herod declares he's going to kill all of the babies. All these little boys who could possibly be the uprising king, he'd been duped by the Magi. They took off the back road. They they didn't take part in his plan. So he said, okay, I was going to try to do this quietly. I was going to try to take care of this, snuff it out and be done. Well, I've got to broaden the scope a little bit. But Bethlehem's a tiny town. It's not that many people involved. He justified a few deaths to make sure he wasn't going to have to deal with a star rising in the east. And so, and so all the babies were to be murdered, executed. You go back into the Old Testament, you see these scenes of, uh, of Moses and, and, and the edict of the Pharaoh, and, and you see Moses escaping, uh, and you see the same here with Jesus. You see Jesus and Mary and Joseph, God calling them to go and to live in Egypt, and that's what they did. They picked up and they went. There were plenty of Jewish people living down in Egypt, and they had money to go. Remember, they had the treasure chest from the Magi, and so they could go and set up a new life down there, and and that's just what they did. They went down into Egypt to live. Matthew quotes Hosea chapter 11 in talking about calling, calling my son out, and Hosea, that son, is Israel. You have in this picture of the flight into Egypt, this second scene in chapter 2 of Matthew, Jesus reliving Israel's story and fulfilling it. You see in Jesus the hopes of Israel writ large. And you see him there in that foreign land, living as the people of God. Christopher Wright said that Israel's purpose was to mediate God's blessing and glory to the nations And that indeed was the purpose of Jesus, the Messiah, to be a light to the nations. 
And so Jesus went and learned how to crawl. And as he learned how to crawl, he was crawling on Egyptian sand. He learned how to toddle around on African soil. He learned his alphabet in an Egyptian home. He learned to sing praise to God. Hearing hearing Egyptian accents. I love the way that Rich Mullins captures this this scene from Jesus' early life. He said, Joseph took his wife and her child and he went to Africa to escape the reign of a deadly king. There along the banks of the Nile, he'd listen to the song that the captive children used to sing, singing, my deliverer is coming, my deliverer is coming. Down in Egypt, the deliverer learned to sing. Learned to sing. To escape to Egypt. The third scene, and this is the, the toughest of all of them, maybe in all of the birth narratives. Uh, it's in 16 to 18. We call this the massacre of the innocents. This is when these children were killed. This scene reminds us that what we have before us each and every Christmas is not a saccharine sweet story. It's not a Hallmark Hall of Fame kind of tale. I mean, we all love those stories where there's a happy ending, you know, and and, and where some magical dog helps you find your long-lost father or some such. I mean, those are great stories, but the Christmas story in our Bibles is more earthy than that. Because it involves sin and redemption and life and hope and glory and ecstasy and joy and pain. Which is to say it's a story about life on this earth. And about how God interacts with us. I turned 40 years old a couple days ago. Some of you are surprised you thought I was about 53. And some of you think I'm 24. Once in, in, in Beirut, a man looked at me and he said, You have the baby face and the hair of an old man. I am very confused. <laughs> I said, I've been confused for years, friend. I mean, started there. But I turned 40, legitimately turned 40, uh, uh, just a while ago. Uh, and, and I was back home uh, at my mom and dad's place. And on my 40th birthday, uh, I said, Wes, come on, let's go. Let's go ride your skateboard. And so Wes and I packed up his skateboard, and I drove straight to my elementary school, the Poplar Springs Elementary School. Poplar Springs is the best school, the best school in the land. The teachers are so helpful, and the principal is grand. I mean, we had a song, you know. We believed ourselves to be the best school in the land, which wasn't technically true, but we claimed it. It was the best school I had. It's where life sort of began in earnest for me. It was at Poplar Springs Elementary School where I had my first real victory. I won the mock election in the fifth grade playing the role of Jack Reed. I got to meet Jack, and uh, he, he was so taken by me, I got to do stump speeches all over Mississippi in little airports for Jack Reed. We backed Jack. So uh, that was the beginning of it all, maybe the beginning of the end. I don't know. It was my first great victory. I had my first great failure uh, when in Popper Springs Elementary School, I cheated on my signed papers. I unstapled them. I took all the bad ones out. I had my parents sign them. I put the bad ones back in and turned them in, and my teacher caught me. And my mother punished me. She made me write letters to my teacher, to myself, 
and a God, explaining why what I did was horrid. Uh, that's, that's how it was. My first great failure, my first great hurt. I was in the second grade there when they came in Miss Stewart's class and told me that my beloved Uncle Steve, I was born on his birthday, 20 years, uh, his 20th birthday, December 29th, uh, died of leukemia. That was the first time I felt fragile and frail on this globe. You know, Robert Fulgham said, everything I need to know I learned in kindergarten. Well, you know, you got to get at least a fifth grade, but he was close. Elementary school will do it to you. Elementary school will massacre your innocence. And in the toddling years of Jesus' life, the stories that the Bible record are stories of a world that is not innocent. It's a story of hurt and sin and victory and glory. And it's right there for us in the Bible. As my grandmother reminds me, she says, you know, it's, it's hard sometimes, Matt. She goes, but I love him, and I believe he loves me. And as we pick up the old, old story and we read it again in the world that is, we have to say with her and with Jeremiah and with Job and with Jesus, he loves me. He loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. The Bible tells the truth on these matters. Doesn't give us a glossy story, but a real one full of life and grace and hope and peace. A story for the nations and a story for you. And the final scene, this is the last one. I would call this scene coming home to Nazareth. Matthew narrates that they had to come back, and as they did, they had all these Archelaus' ruling here, not a good place. They're they're looking at, you know, in the hotel, the real estate thing that just keeps going and going and going, and and Joseph's going, no, that's not a good spot. And so they they go to Nazareth. And the Scripture says there uh, that it was so, uh, to fulfill what the prophet said, they'd be called a Nazarene. Well, this is where a lot of people say, gotcha, finally gotcha. Because in the Old Testament, there's no mention of Nazareth. And they say, all right, I got my out. This is a pack of lies, and I hate the lying liars that tell the lies. I'll go back to being my own God. Well, if that's you this first Sunday, chill out. Faithful observers and commentators, as they're talking about this line about, about Nazareth and being called a Nazarene, this is what they help us understand. <laughs> By this time, this is a byword. Nazareth is a descriptor, and you all understand this. Where you grew up, there were a little section close to you somewhere that was Nazareth. Our first church was in Wanilla, Mississippi, this tiny little community on the Pearl River. And these were all little tiny farming communities. And they had a civic rival, and that was the Sontag community just down the road. They looked exactly alike, and most of them were cousins, but people in Wanilla despised people in Sontag. And they would often say, if you were walking down the streets of Manhattan and you saw someone from Sontag coming at you, you would know that they were from Sontag, 50 50 yards off. Say, but that's your third cousin. But people in these communities, they despised one another, and so Sontag became 
a, a byword. It became a description. And somebody would do something insanely dumb, and they would just go, well, he's from Sontag. To be called a Nazarene is like saying, well, he's from Sontag. Remember that early line in John's gospel where the question is asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, really? When God tabernacled among us, and it was such an event that stars rose and the bright people of the world flooded into Jerusalem, And kings got nervous and angry, and people died, and there was political scheming, and there was this and there was that. When God tabernacled among us, God became a Nazarene. Underline it, highlight it. He came for everyone you've ever met. He came for you, for the kings of the earth and the Nazarene. And when he came, he came as an insider to give us life from without. So the question before all of us is what will we do with this magnificent Savior? This wildly wonderful Savior that we sing about. Will we be like the wise men who offer Him our lives, our treasure, our hopes, our dreams, our all? Or will we in a thousand different ways try to blunt His influence in our daily experience? It really does boil down to that. And there's no better question to consider as we start a new year together. David is going to come lead us in a hymn. We call it a hymn of decision or commitment. Every single one of us have a commitment and decision to make in the, in the sanctuary of our heart. What will we this year and this day do with Jesus? For some of you, this decision needs to be made public as you confess your faith and begin to follow him or join this church perhaps you just have something you need for us to pray with you about today as we stand and sing we invite you to come for god's glory and for your good let's all stand together this morning